On this week's According to Sources podcast, I explain why for now I've taken off the Celgene Bristol-Myers spread until further notice. Later, I look into the what I call the lack of significance in Zayo actually exploring strategic alternatives, glance quickly at Rent-A-Center, Shutterfly, Barnes & Noble, and Wabco. I'm Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio manager of Broom Street Capital, and this is According to Sources for the week of March 10th, 2019. It's crossing the tape right now. Let me explain what's happening here. It's breaking news to share with you this morning. M&A related. There's good activism. I think eBay is in that situation. They got a jewel in PayPal. There's bad activism. Unfortunately, JCPenney was a dying company. Examples of activism gone awry. It was not a surprise to me that that deal fell through. Hello and welcome to According to Sources, a podcast devoted to the topic of merger arbitrage, deal speculation, activism, and the sources that cover and surround them all. First off, a quick disclaimer slash reminder that this is not financial advice, but simply the opinions of According to Sources and Broom Street Capital. Second, while this is a weekly podcast, I often tweet thoughts and ideas in real time. The handle there is at Accord to Sources, A-C-C-O-R-D-T-O Sources. And lastly, I always say this, the primary motivation for this podcast is to open up the conversation to the situations I might be overlooking, or maybe I'm just wrong in the approach I'm taking to the subjects I am discussing. So I invite you to always email me thoughts and questions at michael at according to sources podcast.com. I got to ask you, we have heard you say that, look, there has been no formal approach for the company. If there was, obviously, you would have had to disclose it. So let me ask you this. Did you have any informal approaches or any indications of interest from potential acquirers for Bristol-Myers prior to the Celgene deal? Well, the first and most important thing is that this is not a defensive deal. It's based on creating a stronger company that has better prospects for the future. But did you and have deliver. approaches, even if it's not a defensive deal? We have disclosed in, in, in our filing uh, everything uh, about that. Uh, there was no offer for the company. That was not a driver of the no decision. No offer last time, but was there an approach? Uh, it's disclosed. That clip was courtesy of Bloomberg Television, and it was the interview between M&A reporter Ed Hammond of Bloomberg and Bristol-Myers CEO Giovanni Caforio. Of course, the looming question since this whole process began was, did Bristol-Myers buy Celgene as a defensive maneuver? I found it strange his reluctance not to answer this simple yes or no question and instead cite previous disclosures. To me, just added a little more hair to an already precarious deal situation. Now, personally, I think companies talk informally all the time, and I think 95% of the time it results in nothing. So it's not crazy for Bristol to have had informal talks and have nothing result from it over the years. However, other elements to this deal are beginning to worry me as well. For example, on Friday, we began to see the options market start to price in the idea of a vote delay beyond the April 12th scheduled vote. Now, before Friday... April options were pricing in a 60% chance of Celgene trading to $95 on an approved vote. And on Friday, this went down to 45%. Now, the question is, how rare is a delayed vote? And the answer is, it's it's quite rare. Uh, I did read a Jeffries note. The event team there did find three fairly recent examples. The first one was the deal between AFSI and Stone Point Capital, of course, Carl Icahn got involved there, disrupted the deal. The second one was Dell and Silver Lake. Again, Icahn involved. The vote was delayed. And lastly, 
uh, ongoing currently MCC and Sierra income. Now, at the end of the day, this entire situation now seems to me to rest in the hands of ISS and Glass-Lewis. It's seemingly become a coin flip. And with Celgene downside of roughly 70 and upside to 95, the more I examined my position, the more I just wasn't interested in this sort of spin of the roulette wheel. And instead, remember just how much opportunity remained in Shire Takeda after the vote. And personally, I'd rather put more capital to work chasing less return than bet on an ISS Glass-Lewis decision. Okay, I just want to glance over a few names that were relevant this week, starting with Barnes & Nobles, a name that's been talked about on this podcast many times. The company reported earnings Thursday morning and basically confirmed my worst fears. Now, in early January, when BKS gave its holiday sales update, they guided EBITDA down 10% for the year, which would have implied a range of 150 to $180 million. Now, two months later, that EBITDA range has been cut again, this time to 140 to $155 million. They described the strategic review as, quote, ongoing, and they gave no sense of any sort of timing to its conclusion. Uh, Gabelli analyst John Tinker, previously a guest on this podcast, had this to say on the conference call. Could you um, talk a little about your capital structure in that your debt is up quite a lot? Um and you're paying out $43 million a year in dividends, and you're going to have negative cash flow this year, um, at least sort of 20 to $25 million. So well, why are you continuing to pay this dividend? So the, the dividend is uh, at the discretion of the board. We discuss it every quarter with them and review our cash flow projections accordingly. So that's, um, you know, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that is not something that exactly inspires confidence. While I sold 50% of my position prior to earnings, I still maintain the rest of my exposure. I really believe that this process should have wrapped up shortly after the holiday sales were issued, and it's disturbing that management didn't even allude to the idea that the process is drawing towards a conclusion. The question that I'm playing for at this point is, you know, what am I playing for? A 9 or $10 deal is off the table, at least for now. And without a sense of timing or price being reported by any of the press, I feel unable to add to my position in BKS. Now, a few months ago, I did a podcast which I called My Worst Investing Habits, where I listed what I basically were my consistent pitfalls, the ones that I tended to lose money in the most. And examples of these included things like veering into strategies that I'm not familiar with or ignoring research and opinions that differ from my own. Well, I, can, I think I can add a new mistake to this list, which I, I'm going to simply call the appeal of being contrarian. And I, it applies to Barnes & Nobles, I think, a lot here. There is something inherently always more exciting about going against the herd, going against the grain, and being proven right in a situation. And I find this usually applies to finding a great short idea in a stock with consensus buy ratings across the board. But in the case of Barnes & Noble, I think it was especially that I was especially attracted to the idea of debunking a decade old short thesis that, you know, Amazon was simply slowly killing this business. And in fact, I think maybe part of me thought that Amazon's creation of brick and mortar stores in a way validated the BKS model, that the ebook Kindle momentum was dying. But at the end of the day, even a blockbuster holiday season for books, which included, of course, Michelle Obama's becoming, couldn't salvage earnings for Barnes and Nobles. 
All right, next name I want to talk about is Zayo Group, Z-A-Y-O. This past Wednesday, the company for the first time formally announced that it was exploring strategic alternatives. They postponed their March 14th analyst day with the caveat, however, that it anticipates a minimum of several weeks to months to complete the review. Now, the idea of Zayo being in play was the the least best kept secret out there, right? Cowan analyst Colby Sainz-Sale initially revealed in a note late last year that activists and PE were already circling the name. And we got stories like from Bloomberg saying Google and CenturyLink have shown interest and stories have circulated and Bloomberg and CTFN even mentioning price, something around the low 30s or $30, give or take. Now, my feeling on Zayo has always been that management has seemed very reluctant to sell unless it got a price that it seemingly couldn't refuse. And I felt like it was more likely the company would choose to split itself up than to sell. Now, Zayo's press release to me seemed like a capitulation to simply appease the activists. And not surprisingly, Starboard issued a letter to the company the following day, essentially imploring management to examine a sale which it had already agreed to do. I guess my overall feeling is that the odds of a transaction for Zayo really didn't change this week. Now, we knew the activists were there. We've heard, we've seen Elliot was there. Um, we knew Sachem was there. And we knew about the PE bid. So to pay up 15% from where it was last week didn't really make sense to me. And again, Zayo, for me, I still don't see this outcome resulting in a full sale of the company. Quickly, I just want to talk about the love triangle between Versum Materials, VSM, and Integris and Merck. I'll be honest, I am struggling to see why I would be a buyer at 4880. What am I playing for? My three main questions here are, one, what is the market expecting first? A raise bid from Merck or a bump from Integris? And then my second question would be, if Integris bumps, let's say, 10%, does VSM go up? Because... Even 10% would be around $46 in VSM unless the market suddenly wants to revaluate based on the new and improved synergy targets that VSM gave for 2022 guidance. And I guess my third question would be, is Merck bidding, its, is Merck bidding against itself when the bid is already 48 and seems superior? So I'm just a little bit confused as to what the next steps are here and how people think this is going to play out. Another one to keep on the radar this week is Rent-A-Center. Oral arguments are Monday, tomorrow, with a decision shortly. Uh, the post-trial briefs already submitted, and this is a hearing on the on the post-trial briefs. The decision is to enforce the $15 deal or not. Uh, Jeffries has an upside scenario of 26 if, quote, all the stars were to align. But it seems like it's three up or three down, using a reference of $20 a share there. Wabco, WBC, you know, I would get interested here in the 130s. I think the likelihood of a deal here is pretty high. ZF hasn't, in my experience, paid big premiums. Uh, the last big transaction was in 2014. They bought TRW at an 18% premium. This is the second go-around between the two companies. There was another uh, first attempt in 2017. And I always like that dynamic because I think it can add some speed to the process as a lot of the, the due diligence has been performed in the past. The stock was up Friday. Street Insider, uh, possibly, in my opinion, the worst journalistic source in all of M&A, said that a deal for the company was imminent. But again, I've yet to act there. I would get involved, I think, in the low 30s. And lastly, 
I did initiate a small position on Friday, and it was actually in Shutterfly, S-F-L-Y. Now, I preface this with uh, the position is small, and after this experience in Barnes & Noble, I should probably stay away from any melting ice cube business with deteriorating fundamentals who competes with Amazon, which Shutterfly fits into all of those categories. But with that said, one catalyst I always look for is when a bearish analyst sees value. And this week, Goldman Sachs, who has had a sell rating on Shutterfly, published a note entitled, Shutterfly Evaluating M&A Presidents and LBO Analysis. And I had a few highlights. I'll, I'll rattle them off. Number one, as a standalone company, Goldman believes SFly is worth $37 a share and $52 in a M&A transaction. They're basing the 52 number on relevant transactions from the past, such as Clayton Detweiler's acquisition of American Greetings in 2018, the Weiss family's acquisition of American Greetings in 2013, Quad's acquisition of LS Communications in 2018, and Shutterfly's own deal for LifeTouch also in 2018. Uh, Goldman's 39 target overall for the company is based on a 15% chance that it goes that it does get bought for 52 and an 85% chance that it's a stock sinking back to 37 and remains independent. Now, much like Wabco, this is the second go around at an attempted sale for Shutterfly. In 2015, they tried, but to no avail. But with no CEO currently, I believe Shutterfly is truly waving the white flag as a public company. SunTrust Robinson Humphrey sees an M&A transaction in the range of 45 to 66. And it does seem like since PE has already been sniffing around the company, maybe we see a transaction sooner than later. So that is it. I just wanted to go over a few names. The only portfolio movement this week was removing Celgene Bristol and then adding a small portion of Shutterfly. Again, this has been According to Sources for the week of March 10th, 2019, and I will see you next week.